Hi, I'm Peter J. Ray. Welcome. Today's topic is James Monroe, Part 1. James Monroe was the fifth president of the United States. And uh, in my opinion, uh, we were five for five as a country. In other words, the first five presidents were outstanding. George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and James Monroe. Uh, interesting thing is that um, after, you know, Washington was a great military leader, but the next three fellows, Adams, Jefferson, and Madison, neither of, none of them uh, served in the revolution militarily. You know, they served politically. But James Monroe, the fifth, was also a soldier in the war, saw a lot of action. So he had that in common with George Washington. They were, they actually, both men were men of action, not so much intellectuals. Uh, they called James Monroe Jim. Uh, the capital of Liberia in West Africa is named, the name is Monrovia, and it's named after James Monroe because he played a major role in the founding of the country of Liberia. Interesting. The Monroe, the Monroe Doctrine comes from James Monroe, this, this idea that has been, was American policy that North and South America were off limits for further European colonization. In other words, that the, uh, the Americas were a part of the sphere of influence of the United States. The famous uh, painting by Emanuel Lutz called Crossing of the Delaware, some people call it Washington Crossing the Delaware, uh, depicts you know, George Washington uh, before the Battle of Trenton, New Jersey. Actually, in that, in that painting, James Monroe is, is also depicted. He's in the back behind Washington holding the American flag. The motto of James Monroe's presidency was the era of good feelings because the, the federal, at least early on, the, the Federalist Party died. We only had one political party for a period of time. And uh, there was uh, people, after the War of 1812, people were pretty happy. There was a sense of, of un unity in the United States. And I like to use that, uh, I like to use that uh, quote whenever I'm having a, a nice friendship with someone and we're getting along real well and I... I'll say like, well, to quote the uh, motto of the of James Monroe administration, may the era of good feelings continue. James Monroe was the last president who was a veteran of the Revolutionary War. He was the last to wear a powdered wig, knee breeches, and a tricorn hat. He played a major role in the War of 1812 during the dark days in 1814 after Washington City was burned and our country, things, things were looking pretty bad for our country. As governor of Virginia, uh, James Monroe played a major role in promoting pub, uh, public schools and the infrastructure, which had a lot, which did a lot for his, for his state and for, his, for the country, because those things are important functions of government. He uh, also uh, was involved in creating security in, in what was back then the West, the, the land uh, just east of the Mississippi River, places like Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Tennessee, and so forth. And uh, he was involved in making those, that land secure from Indian attacks, and it allowed, which meant that settlers could move in, and they poured into those areas. During the Revolution, uh, James Monroe saw a lot of action. He was in, in many battles, especially including New York City, Trenton, Brandywine, Germantown, and Monmouth Courthouse. <clears throat> James Monroe was born on April 28, 1758, in Westmoreland County, Virginia. So he was among the first five presidents. 
He was the fourth of five to be from Virginia. He was the second of fi- the second oldest of five children. His parents were Spence and Elizabeth Jones Monroe. Now, when he was he was 11 years old in 1769, and he started going to school in Westmoreland County's only school that was had the, the teacher was Reverend Archibald Campbell from Scotland. Apparently, there were a lot of fine teachers from Scotland. I know, I believe Jefferson and Madison also had Scottish teachers. So at this school, um, Monroe's, one of his schoolmates was John Marshall, and they became lifelong friends. Of course, John Marshall became the Supreme Court Chief Justice. It was a five-mile walk every day for James Monroe to school and, and home. He would go to school with books under one arm and a musket over his shoulder because there was a there was a danger of Indian attacks, and he also was would be you know hu- would be hunting, going going to school and coming home. And he w- he was a good shot, which helped him later. You know when he had to, when it was uh, he faced situations which might have beca- involved a duel because people didn't want to get involved in a duel with Monroe because he was a good shot. It was said that his mother quote never lacked squirrels for a stew or pigeons for a pie. So. The good old days when people, when we had uh, squirrel stew and pigeon pie. In 1772, Monroe, James Monroe was 14 and his mother died. Yeah, so he lost his mom at a very young age. And uh, this was, she had complications after the birth of, of her youngest child. Two years later, Monroe's father died. So he was, at age 16, both of his parents were gone. And for a time, he was in charge of the 500-acre farm, but he, he was really too, too young. And uh, his maternal uncle, the brother of his uh, mother, Joseph Jones, stepped in and helped, these, helped James and his siblings until they reached adulthood. So he became like a, he became like a, father, a parent to them, a father. So he did a good job. Joseph Jones really helped him, helped Monroe and his siblings. In 1774... James Monroe uh, started college, and he was a student at the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia. And again, John Marshall was uh, a, a fellow uh, a classmate there. And uh, so this, this was really something. It was a year before the uh, American Revolution started, and Williamsburg was uh, you know, an important place because uh, Virginia was, uh, played a very important role in the Revolution. And the how this it, William, Williamsburg was the capital of Virginia. So, uh, and the House of Burgesses would meet there from April to October. And during those times, there was plenty of pomp and ceremony, dances at the Apollo Room and and at the Raleigh ta- Tavern, and famous people like Thomas Jefferson, George George Washington, and Patrick Henry would come to the House of Burgesses. And, uh, you know, Monroe was a, a student, and he'd see these, these famous men who became even more famous in the years to come. In 1775, the American Revolution started, and, uh, in, well, in, in, up in Boston. There was no fighting in the South yet, and, uh, but Monroe and his fellow college students began daily drills on the college, dream, uh, college green preparing for war. And... Uh, we were on the we were we were on the this was on the verge of the American Revolution. Uh, governor Dunmore got at one point got scared. The British governor and he fled to a, a British naval frigate just before James Monroe and twenty four militiamen stormed the governor's palace 
and seized 200 muskets and 300 swords. So James Monroe fought in the American Revolution for four years, from 1776 to 1780. And uh, yeah, he was at the critical Battle of, of Trenton in December of 1776. He became a lieutenant colonel, not really a high-ranking officer. He quit college. He did not finish college. I don't believe he finished college because back and later on he, he went on to have a legal career. And back then you didn't have to have a college degree to, uh, to become a lawyer. You just had to study and pass, pass the bar exam. So uh, he was involved in the early, early in his military career. He was fighting in New York City, the battles of Harlem and White Plains. In January of 76, the British had burned Norfolk, Virginia, which was a very, you know, very terrible thing. And uh, this was in the middle of, middle of winter, and the people, a lot of the people became homeless. And Monroe's brother, Spence, had recently died. So this is when uh, he decided to drop out of college, and he enlisted in the Virginia militia. And uh, by August, Monroe and the, James Monroe and the Virginia militia, they traveled north to New York City, and were involved in the fighting against the British uh, in New York City, in Manhattan. And the, uh, previously, earlier in the year, the British had withdrawn from Boston. And then New York City became the theater of war in the late summer of 1776, shortly after the Declaration of Independence. And uh, New York City was a, uh, was a major defeat for the United States, and uh, it was lost. A lot of guys died. A lot of weapons were lost. A lot of prisoners were taken. Uh, and, but James Monroe was with the American Army as it retreated from New York City across New Jersey to the Delaware River and into Pennsylvania. And he wrote about that time, the retreat, a very depressing time. We, a lot of people thought the war was lost, the war was over, because the, the army melted away, and it, it had gone from like 12,000 guys to 3,000. And losing New York City was very traumatic. Anyway, he wrote about this, about the retreat across New York City in the fall of uh, 1776, quote, It will be forever celebrated in the annals of our country for the patient suffering, the unshaken firmness and gallantry of this small band, and the great and good qualities of its commander. General Washington was always near the enemy, and his countenance and manner made an an impression on me, which time can never efface. A deportment so firm, so dignified, so exalted, but yet so modest and composed, I have never seen in any other person. So he was part of, Monroe was one of the guys who didn't, didn't go home, who didn't give up, who didn't, uh, who, didn't, uh, who didn't desert. And he was with Washington during these very dark times. And of course, uh, in December 1776, George Washington knew he was the commander of the, of the American army. He knew he had to do something. Something had to happen. He needed a victory because the morale was extremely low. And it was, to, it was so low that people thought the war was over. We had lost the war of independence. And so he planned the battle uh, to attack Trenton, New Jersey. You know, and this is where the famous, that's why the famous painting of Washington crossing the Delaware is so important. And this was a major victory that uh, the American army marched all night. They recrossed the Delaware River into New Jersey, attacked attacked, uh, Trenton at dawn. And Trenton Trenton was full of... uh, 
uh, British soldiers who were actually German mercenaries fighting for the British, these Hessian soldiers. And they were, there was some fighting. It wasn't a long battle because they were sort of taken by surprise. And these guys were screaming when they entered. The thing is, Monroe himself was shot and uh, he was severely wounded. An artery was severed and he could have bled to death. He almost died at Trenton. And his life was saved by a quick-thinking doctor who stopped the bleeding. A bullet has t- had torn through his chest and lodged in his shoulder. And what followed, he needed 10 weeks to recover from this wound. Now back to the, uh, uh, before the battle, you know, this painting, uh, Washington Crossing the Delaware by Emanuel Lutz, uh, uh, is, was bef- depicts the, act, you know, the recrossing of the Delaware before the battle. And in this uh, painting, Monroe is depicted as holding the American flag behind George Washington. It's an idealized painting. Actually, Monroe is in a different boat, but it's still a very, I still like the painting, even if it isn't historically accurate. So after that, you know, he had to recover from this wound, and then after he recovered, James Monroe became an aide-de-camp for Brigadier General Lord Sterling. He saw battle at the, he saw action at the Battle of uh, of Brandywine, which was another uh, American defeat. And at that battle, the Marquis de Lafayette was wounded. He was this famous French volunteer who came to serve the American army. And around this time, Monroe and Lafayette became friends. They became lifelong friends. And uh, he, he tended, Monroe tended uh, Lafayette's wounds. Lafayette was wounded, and, and Monroe stayed up all night helping him and nursing him. And they had a wonderful lifelong friendship. And as a result, James Monroe became very pro-French. He was very much in favor of France, believed in, that, that France was a good country. You know, and the two superpowers were Great Britain and France. And, and everyone had, of course, we were fighting the war against Great Britain. So it was natural. And the French were helping us. But he, he maintained that pro-French uh, attitude uh, for, for the rest of his life. During the uh, tough, very tough, severe winter at 1777-1778 at Valley Forge, and again, hard times for the Continental Army, uh, James Monroe was there. And uh, when, when so many of the fellows uh, starved and froze to death at Valley Forge, he shared a cabin with John, Cam- John Marshall, again, his old friend from childhood, who became famous as Supreme Court Chief Justice. And before that, or, well, he was also fought at the Battle of Germantown and then at the uh, tremendous victory of Monmouth Courthouse in the uh, spring of 1778. So by 1780, Monroe had, had withdrawn, had left service. His military career was over. And he, was, he kept trying to find a, uh, hoping to become a, uh, an officer, uh, become a general, and he, could, he wasn't, able, wasn't able to do so. But he definitely had, had had extensive military action. The war was almost over. By 1780, he began studying law under Virginia Governor Thomas Jefferson. Very interesting. Thomas Jefferson became like his law professor, the, and they, they became very good friends. Historian Harry Ammon wrote, quote, Jefferson, like all Monroe's friends, cherished him for the tremendous warmth of his personality, his innate goodness, and his ready response to the feelings of others. So they had a wonderful friendship, uh, James Monroe and Thomas Jefferson. By 1782, uh, the war was over. We'd become, we'd become, 
Independence had been won, although we were not one country yet. The Constitution had not been created. But uh, Monroe had, was elected to the Virginia legislature, so this was the beginning of his political career. He was a protege, again, of Thomas Jefferson. Soldiering had built his confidence. You know, he, this really helped him a lot. You know, he'd been through a lot in the war, these five major battles, and uh, he was not brilliant at speaking, but he was a good listener. That's a very important quality. He smiled a lot, and he wrote warm, sincere letters. He's a good guy, James Monroe, really good guy. And uh, that's the most important thing, his character. And he had that. He was a good man. By 1783, uh, James Monroe was the, uh, a member of the Virginia's delegation to Congress. Now, this is, a, again, before we had the U.S. Constitution. So that was the Confederation Congress at that time meeting in Annapolis, Maryland. The summer of 1783, Monroe spent at Monticello with Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson, he spent the whole summer there, and Jefferson became like a father to him. They had a wonderful friendship. It was very nice. However, in 1785, Thomas Jefferson was sent to France as U.S. ambassador, and James Monroe was distraught because Jefferson had become his best friend, his mentor, his brother, and again, he had been—he was a father to him. And uh, they had been inseparable for months. They were together all the time. So this is really tough, Jefferson leaving. And uh, Monroe wrote him a letter. Monroe wrote a letter to Jefferson, and he wrote this quote: "I very sensibly feel your absence, not only in the solitary situation in which you have left me, but upon many other accounts. I shall write you constantly." And so this is tough when, when Jefferson went to, went to France. James Monroe was quiet, but he made friends all over the country. He was curious, courteous, open, humble, generous. He was good at making and keeping friends. Good guy, really good guy. That's the thing that's very appealing. And this, is, this was the uh, secret of his success. It's not very, not very complicated if you're a good, be a good person. In 1786, James Monroe married Elizabeth Courtright, whom he had met in New York City. She was from New York City. They established a home, which they named Ashlawn, near Monticello. They, in their married life, they had three children, two daughters, and a son that died at age two. His wife, Elizabeth, was a, they had a very good marriage. She was beautiful, well-educated, artistic, and musical. She was also political. She was a smart lady. And she was a big help to him in his political career and, you know, in his personal life. They had a very, very wonderful relationship. And she was, she was, she was a real partner. She was kind of like uh, uh, John Adams' wife, Abigail. And uh, she, she didn't have Dolly Madison's personality, but she was, she was a very strong person and, a very, and very smart. You know, a lot of women back then weren't into politics. They thought, oh, this is men's business. But but uh, Elizabeth uh, Monroe was very interested in politics, and she was very helpful. They had a wonderful relationship, wonderful marriage. At that, when they got married, Monroe was 28, and Elizabeth, whom he called Eliza, was 18. They got married in New York City at Trinity Episcopal Church on Broadway and Wall Street. So he, he, he embarked on married life. By 1786, and for, the, for the following four years, Monroe was a member of the Virginia legislature, and they, the, the couple, James and Elizabeth, moved from New York City to Virginia and had their home in Fredericksburg. Of course, they also had this country home, Ashlawn. 
Now, the, when the U.S. Constitution was written in, in 1787, Monroe was not a part of it. And then, and then after, during the ratification process, he was against it. And uh, because, well, that, there, were, there was a lot of opposition in Virginia, and he was swayed by that. So he actually voted against ratification of the U.S. Constitution in, in 1788, although it did, it did pass, and then, of course, he became president himself. And during this time, he was working as a lawyer traveling the circuit in Virginia to places like Richmond, Charlottesville, and Staunton, and home to Fredericksburg. And during this time, he very much missed his wife and uh, their baby, Eliza. So they actually had, he called his wife Eliza, and then they had a daughter. They named, their oldest daughter, they named, named Eliza as well. So that must have been a little bit confusing. So even though he had been against the U.S. Constitution, uh, by 1790, he was uh, elected a senator from Virginia, and he served for the next four years through the influence of Patrick Henry. Now, he had more than one, and, and he became a leader in the Republican Party. The, this was the beginning of partisan politics in the United States, and he became a leader. Uh, he was uh, against, uh, was in conflict with Alexander Hamilton, the Federalist leader, Federalist Party leader, and they, um, twice, they almost had duels. So, of course, Alexander Hamilton was kind of a difficult guy, so that was, that was not uncommon. He was in conflict with a lot of people, actually. By 1794, um, James Monroe was appointed U.S. Ambassador to, to France, and uh, he was there for, for two years, and this was, uh, this was really something. During his time in France, he helped secure the release of Thomas Paine, who had been, who had been imprisoned. Now remember, France was going through the French Revolution, and uh, a lot of crazy stuff was going on. A lot of bad things were happening. And uh, Thomas Paine had gone, had actually, uh, Thomas Paine was from Great Britain, and then he'd, in the U.S., he'd come to the U.S., and he played a major role in the American Revolution. He'd written the book Common Sense, which helped uh, change public opinion to supporting a war of independence. And then during the dark days in uh, late 1776, he wrote another short book called The Crisis, which helped raise morale in the American army called, when he wrote the words, these are the times that try men's souls. And then later he had gone to France and he'd been elected to the, uh, to the, uh, to the French uh, legislature, the, the assembly, even though he was, you know, he wasn't French, but you know, they were very, the French Revolution was kind of, kind of crazy. But, uh, and then uh, he was, well, anyway, he was, uh, Monroe was, we're getting ahead of the story. Monroe was appointed because he was very much in favor of the French Revolution. He was appointed by President George Washington. And, of course, later he was recalled uh, because he, it was believed that he was overly French. And he was a victim of political, conf the political conflict between Great Britain and France. Now, Elizabeth, his wife, was very, very happy to go to, to to Paris because, you know, it was the glamorous city. It still is, you know. Didn't have the Eiffel Tower yet, but it was still, you know, considered, for Americans, considered a very, you know, glamorous, exotic city. So, on June 18th, 1794, James Monroe, his wife Elizabeth, and their eight-year-old daughter, Eliza, sailed from Baltimore to Le Havre, France, a 29-day trip. And uh, they arrived during the Reign of Terror in France, Boy, tough situation that they ended up being in. Uh, 500,000 uh, French citizens were in prison 
for political reasons, even though you know they really were innocent. It was just cr crazy what they were doing. And they were awaiting death. 17,000 had already had their heads cut off by the guillotine. 25,000 were murdered by mobs. And the architect of the reign of terror, uh, fortunately, Robespierre recently himself had had his head cut off. So it was near the end of the reign of terror. And the, uh, you know, the Monroe family, James and his, his wife and daughter, they arrived unwittingly in this scene of disaster. And it was kind of tough because he was very much in, you know, he's pro-France and in favor of the French Revolution. And then he was in this very tough situation. He was very forceful. He was very forceful, but friendly. He was very effective, actually, during this time because, you know, he was, uh, he learned French. Became flu he was fluent in French. And uh, he, the French liked him. He tried to end the French seizure of American ships. The French were agreeable. And the, this was a very tough time because Great Britain and France were at war and these two superpowers and the United States was trying to, to, to navigate between them and trying to avoid war with both of them. And then uh, James Monroe was the U.S. ambassador in France during the reign of terror. Wow, talk about a tough situation. And uh, also he was able to get Americans released from French prisons, American citizens who had been there. Anybody was, it had become really lawless and insane there was just this bloodlust from the poor against the rich, and no one was safe in France, and Americans had been arrested. He was able to get them released as U.S. ambassador. The citizens of Paris, the Parisians, were captivated by the beauty, elegance, and poise of Elizabeth, and she was dubbed, quote, La Belle Américaine. Uh, so that was, uh, yeah, she was, they really thought she was something. She, you know, and she was really strong-spirited. She learned French as well. And, you know, she was, she dressed well. And she, she was, a, you know, a real smart lady. Now, the, the other thing that happened is Lafayette, the Marquis de Lafayette, he had gotten in trouble with the French Revolution. You know, he was actually in the French Assembly. And then it wasn't safe for him. Things got so crazy. So he was going to be arrested. So he... He went into exile, and then since France was at war with all these different countries, he ended up being arrested by, by the Austrians, and he was in a, a prison in Austria during this very tough time. Meanwhile, his wife, uh, Adrian, back in Paris, she had been arrested and was in prison in, uh, in, in, in Paris. So very, very tough. And actually, shortly before the Monroes arrived, her mother and grandmother had been beheaded they had had their heads cut off by the guillotine in the reign of terror. And remember, you know, Monroe and, and Lafayette had been very good friends. So here his good friend's wife was in prison. So they decided they wanted, what, what can we do? And Monroe felt, well, as ambassador, he really, he couldn't, you know, shouldn't intervene directly. So Elizabeth says, well, I'll go. I'll see what I can do to get, help her get out of prison. So she, they had bought, they had purchased a very nice uh, carriage and so Elizabeth Monroe, she got in that carriage and just went to this prison, the Plessis prison, where Madame Lafayette was. And she braved, Elizabeth Monroe braved the, the Parisian mob. So this was a dangerous situation. And, and the thing is, and Adrian was released. Madame, Mrs. Monroe, uh, Lafayette's wife was released. So it was amazing and uh, really, really something. And she, she showed her, Elizabeth Monroe showed her courage because she, she, this was not a, this was a dangerous situation, and she was brave, and so Monroe was very happy that he was able to help his, uh, his best, his very good friend to 
to get his, his wife released and save her life because otherwise she would have been executed. She was going to have her head cut off by the guillotine in the reign of terror. During his time in, in France, Monroe purchased 30 volumes of Voltaire. Yeah, so he was, yeah, he was also an intellectual. 33 volumes of Rousseau and 15 volumes of Plutarch. Really good. Elizabeth bought a lot of furniture, which had formerly been the property of King Louis XIV and King Louis XV. Very, very interesting. So it appears we're out of time. We're going to continue next time. Thank you so much for watching. I really appreciate it. And uh, I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Peter J. Ray. Welcome. Today's topic is James Monroe, Part 2, the fifth president of the United States of America. We stopped last time in 1795, and James Monroe was the U.S. ambassador to France, and it was the, near the end of the reign of terror in the French Revolution. So really, really something. All these people who were being, being executed in this uh, orgy of violence and murder in, in, in France. Very, very tragic, because you know, the French Revolution had started off very, people were very hopeful that it would lead to something very positive. At any rate, uh, Monroe was there, and uh, he was trying to make the best of it, and uh, as acting as the United States representative. On July 4th, 1795, he had a big, uh, big party for, in honor of the uh, Independence Day for the United States at his home in Paris. At that time, because of, because of his uh, personality, he, because he, he, he was fluent in French, and, uh, and he was very much, uh, you know, he really admired France. He was, uh, this was kind of hard on him because he, he was a big supporter of the French Revolution. And when the reign of, you know, the reign of terror happened, this was, it was hard for all the people who supported the French Revolution. At any rate, he was very popular because of his personality. He was a good guy. He was outgoing. And he had a strong spirit. But he was also representing America's interests. And he was the most popular American in Paris since Benjamin Franklin. At that, at that party on July 4th, they served, he served foie gras and pâté. You know, these nice, nice, uh, nice food. And again, his, he and his wife both were fluent in French. They, they wound up buying a beautiful home in Paris called La Folie de la Bouille. And he expected that to be the American embassy. They had, had happy years in this, this beautiful home. Uh, he paid for it. He, did, you know, he was really, uh, as they used to say, land rich and cash poor. He paid for it with titles to uh, property that he had in the West, land titles. And he was hoping that it would become the American embassy. And it, I don't believe it did. And this was uh, contributed to the severe financial problems that he had late in life. In September that year, 1795, he, was, he gave uh, Adrian Lafayette, the wife of Lafayette, whom he had gotten, they, he, well, he and Elizabeth had gotten out of prison and saved her life. And they got her a U.S. passport, which she used to travel to Denmark to live in safety. Because it, was, it still wasn't safe for her. France still wasn't a safe country. And uh, she needed to get out of the country until, the, until France uh, regains political stability. Uh, also, James Monroe saved, saved Thomas Paine, who, uh, who was in prison. Remember, he was, we talked about him before. He was a great hero of the American Revolution, originally from, from Great Britain, and then came to the U.S., played a major role in his writing, 
in the revolution. And then he actually moved to France, joined the French Revolution, was elected to the assembly. However, he got in trouble because he voted against the execution of King Louis XVI. And uh, for that, <laughs> you could see it was a, they'd become a very lawless country. And he was against the execution of the, of the king. Of course, King Louis XVI's head was cut off. Anyway, he was, uh, Thomas Paine was arrested by Robespierre. And he languished in prison for, for some time, I believe more than a year, and his health became very poor. Under the influence of, of James Monroe, Monroe thought, well, this Thomas Paine, you know, got to help this guy because he played such an important role in the American Revolution. So he was able to get him released from prison, and Paine was in very poor health. He ended up living with the Monroes for a year and a half in their home, La, Fol La Folie, and uh, and trying to regain his health. Sadly, unfortunately, you know, he, he, uh, Payne had become very bitter, and he blamed George Washington for being in prison. And he started writing public letters that were anti-George Washington. So this was, this, was a, this was no good. And eventually, uh, you know, Monroe told him, you know, he had to knock it off, and eventually uh, Payne moved out. So that was kind of sad how that turned out. In 1796, the United States signed a treaty with Great Britain called the John Jay Treaty, negotiated by John Jay, and this was very poorly received in France. The French thought that the Americans were siding with Great Britain, and they actually weren't. They were just uh, you know, having to, they had to deal with Great Britain, and the British didn't even didn't even give up the on the impressment issue. Anyway, there was a growing political conflict in the United States between. Federalists and Republicans, later renamed the Democratic Party, and uh, because of uh, because of this again this conflict between Great Britain and France, um, and the political conflict because uh, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison were in the opposing party of President President Washington, and Monroe was 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 in the basically in the opposition party, but he'd been appointed by George Washington, and as a result of this political political troubles, uh, he was recalled. President Washington uh, ordered him to come home, and he was replaced as American ambassador to France. He was a victim of politics. These things happen. So the family uh, arrived in Philadelphia in June of 1797 after three years in France. And uh, by this time, John Adams had been newly inaugurated as the second American president. And during this time, around this time, uh, James Monroe almost had a duel with Alexander Hamilton. He was, he was out of favor with George Washington, and he was embarrassed. So this was a low point in his life. He'd actually done a good job in France, but, you know, politics can be, can be tough, can be very divisive. Now, although Monroe was unpopular in Philadelphia and New York in the north, he was very popular in Virginia, and he re returned home to his home state and renewed, renewed his friendship with uh, James Madison and uh, Thomas Jefferson. And Dolly and Elizabeth, his, uh, Monroe's wife Elizabeth, became very good friends, Dolly Madison and Elizabeth Monroe. And during this time, uh, John Adams was president, and uh, James Monroe was working to help, to, to help Thomas Jefferson become president. In the meantime, as well, he returned to farming, and he, uh, he was growing tobacco, wheat, and corn. He also resumed his legal career. In 1799, Elizabeth gave birth to their first son, whom they named James Jr. That same year, James Monroe was elected governor of Virginia, and uh, he uh, 
this for the second time, I believe, and he uh, he uh, had had a lot lot going on. The uh, he had to deal with the Gabriel Prosser's slave revolt. He was, uh, and again, he was close friends with James Madison. Now, the at that time, the Virginia governor had no power, basically under the law, no power. That's how the uh, you know the wealthy people wanted it. And however, uh, Monroe, you know, he, he had a, he, he wasn't about to be a, you know a weak governor or a you know a know nothing governor. So he he be, he became powerful even under the law. He was not. The governors didn't have power, but he became powerful through public speaking, and he promoted his agenda. He gave speeches, and he shamed the Virginia legislature into doing these things, which were very good. Uh, he was promoting merit-based appointments, very, very important to have good people in government rather than just political appointments. Public education, this was very, very important, uh, getting the, the, the state of, of Virginia to uh, support public education, you know, so so important for our country. A road maintenance and construction. This was really big too. You know, infrastructure, helping farmers getting their produce to market through working on uh, building roads and taking care of them. So a lot of progress was made in Virginia during the three years that uh, James Monroe was was, uh, was governor. As I said, one of the early crises he had was the Gabriel Prosser slave revolt. Now, the thing is, the South had shifted from tobacco to cotton farming. This was early in the Industrial Revolution. In, over in Great Britain, uh, the, uh, the British had started making these factories, had been built, where they uh, were, were pr producing cloth, textile, and the, the raw material was cotton, and the bulk of it was being grown in the United States. Now, the thing is, in the old days, or previously, tob tobacco farming required skilled workers. And the slaves were treated better, the African-American slaves, because, you know, they had to, they had to, they had to do a good job with, with the tobacco because tobacco was a gentle crop. And, uh, and not all, most of the slaves couldn't work doing this. You know, the young and the old couldn't do it because it was, required skills. However, when cotton became king and, you know, this, and big money was being made because the British were paying big money for this first industry in the Industrial Revolution, and so the thing is, cotton required no skills, and you could have children out in the fields, old people. And so the thing is, cruelty to slaves increased. You know, as these slave owners were, were, were starting to make a lot of money from cotton. So naturally, slavery itself was already terrible, and then cruelty to slaves increased, and that meant that, you know, there was going to be more slave revolts when they got fed up with the way they were being treated. Anyway, when news came to uh, President uh, to Governor Monroe that there was a there was an incipient slave rebellion that was that was coming, so he called out the state militia, and they found a large catch of weapons and gunpowder. Uh, Gabriel Prosser, the leader of the slave revolt, was arrested, and tw and he and twenty seven other slaves were executed. So this was this was tough. You know, slavery was absolutely wrong, and you know this people were were afraid. Were afraid, you know, what would happen, and you know, and everybody knew that in in, in the Caribbean and in in San Domingue, the French colony, that all of the white people had been killed or gone into exile, and because of the the Haitian Revolution. So that was this was happening in August of 1800. In September, uh, James and Elizabeth's baby son uh, James died. So this was a this was a tough time for him, very tough time in his life. 
That same year, uh, Thomas Jefferson was elected president, third president of the United States. And remember, he was uh, Madison, uh, Monroe's close friend. And so he took, uh, Jefferson took office in March of 1801. And uh, he considered James Monroe the best state leader. Of course, uh, by this time, uh, James Madison was, you know, working. He was the Secretary of State for Jefferson. So back in Virginia, uh, uh, James Monroe was the top leader, top political leader in the state. And in December of that year, 1801, Monroe was elected to his third one-year term by, by law, the last he could serve. In April, April of 1802, uh, Elizabeth gave birth to their third child, Maria Hester. And that same year, 1803, President Jefferson sent... Uh, sent James Monroe to, to France, and uh, what resulted was the Louisiana Purchase. So this was really something. Now, remember, the Mississippi River was such an important river, and so, uh, and really the, uh, the Louisiana Territory is, uh, the river goes right through it, and New Orleans is at, you know, the port that controls uh, the Louisiana, the Mississippi River, and, uh, and, uh, it's, you know, the, the main city in, in Louisiana. So there was news that Spain would sell Louisiana and Florida to, to France. Apparently that had already been done, but they, people didn't know it. So people, people were always concerned about, you know, the Mississippi and New Orleans. So uh, President Jefferson sent James Monroe to France, and the, his, the purpose of, his, of this mission was to purchase New Orleans. And uh, that, that was it, it was sort of a limited, it wasn't about buying the entire uh, Louisiana area, which in, encompasses, you know, like one-third of the continental United States. So in March of 1803, James, Elizabeth, and their, their daughter, uh, Eliza, who was 16, and their baby daughter, Maria Hester, who was one, they all set sail for France again. Now by this time, Napoleon Bonaparte was in power in France, the French Revolution, all the high ideals of it had led to the Napoleon Bonaparte dictatorship. Interesting thing is Renaud's daughter Eliza, you know, remember they'd been in France earlier when he was ambassador. She was friends. She was friends with Napoleon's wife, Josephine's daughter. Now this was not Napoleon's daughter, but it was Joseph, his wife from a previous, Josephine's had a, a daughter from a previous marriage and uh, he'd been killed in the reign of terror. So this is interesting that uh, Monroe's daughter was friends with Napoleon's stepdaughter. And so during this time, he, uh, and it turns out that uh, Napoleon was fed up with, uh, with America. Well, I mean, not the United States, but the, the Haitian Revolution had happened. He had actually planned to, to populate the Louisiana Territory, have a lot, send a lot of French people over there. And then he gave up on everything because he was busy with Great Britain, and he gave up on his dreams of empire in America. So he decided, he offered the entire Louisiana Territory to, to James Monroe, and Monroe accepted, said, well, sure. Even, actually, it was, outside of his, uh, it was outside of his mission and what he'd been told to do. And the area was larger than uh, the combination of Great Britain, France, Germany, Spain, and Portugal combined. And the deal that Monroe worked out was for, we would, the U.S. paid $15 million dollars for this territory, and it came out to four cents an acre, so it was a really good uh, good deal. Napoleon also knew that you know the American population was growing, and that whether he sold it or not, that probably the U.S. was going to take that territory anyway. 
it was better to do it legally. He knew how much, how important the Mississippi River was to Americans. So this, this is really something. Andrew Jackson uh, wrote this about, or said this about the Louisiana Purchase, quote, Every face wears a smile, and every heart leaps with joy. So people were very, very, this was big news and happened. So, you know, Thomas Jefferson gets credit for it, but, you know, a lot of people are involved. Certainly James Monroe played a major role because he was actually there negotiating with the French to, to make this happen. So people were very happy. The Mississippi River was secure. And in the future, the United States would uh, enjoy oil from Oklahoma, a copper from Montana and the Dakotas, silver and gold from Colorado, and, and in the future, the world's richest grain fields in the, in the West. So this was really something. Uh, at, while he was still in, in, in France, uh, President Jefferson appointed him ambassador to Great Britain and so in 1803. So the family, James, Elizabeth, and their two daughters sailed from Calais across the English Channel to, to Great Britain. And his mission was to work on the impressment issue. And the British had been kidnapping Americans. This was terrible to, to, to man the British Navy because they, were very, they treated the sailors so terribly that these guys would desert. And they, they, nobody, who, nobody wanted to join the British Navy because they were so cruel. And, they were, and, and so these guys would desert. Uh, and because in, in the American merchant marine, they, could, they were paid more and flogged less often. So anyway, this was, this was terrible when the British were stopping American ships and kidnapping Americans. To, some of them were British deserters. A lot of, a lot of them weren't to, to, uh, to serve in the British Navy. And uh, uh, Monroe was unable to get any, he make any headway. And many, the, the British would, weren't going to give this up. And this, initially, he was treated very well in Great Britain. However, during the time that Monroe was there, President Jefferson had... Uh, had, had really upset the British ambassador in Washington by wearing lousy clothes in their meeting and, and slippers with no heels. The, uh, so he felt, this British ambassador felt this was an insult to Great Britain. And so at, when the news came to Great Britain, after that, Monroe was, started being treated poorly with hostility. So it was, it was tough. It was tough for him. And they were having financial problems. He had ongoing financial problems and uh, and he believed he needed to go home to practice law. However, in 1804, uh, he ended up, Monroe and Elizabeth ended up attending the coronation in Paris, France. They traveled back to France, the coronation of Napoleon Bonaparte as Emperor Napoleon I. So the, the French were back with another monarchy. You know, it started with the French Revolution, and now you had King Louis, Louis the the 16th, you know, who had been overthrown. And now you had a new emperor, Napoleon. And Napoleon, uh, th it took place at Notre Dame Cathedral in, in Paris. Such a cool church, you know, from, from Hunchback of Notre Dame, Victor Hugo's book. And then the Pope had been abducted by, by Napoleon and brought to Paris to, to preside over this ceremony, to have a mass, to, to try to make it official. And uh, if you've ever seen movies about this, you know, the, Napoleon, instead of allowing the Pope to put the, uh, the crown on his head, Napoleon, you know, grabs the crown and puts it on his head himself. <laughs> so this was, and James and Elizabeth Monroe were there at that historic event. And the next thing they did, they, he, he traveled to Spain. Now, it was, he, he went alone. They thought it was too, would be too hard for, 
you know, his wife and daughters to go. So he went alone, and he was negotiating with the Spanish about what they called the Floridas. Now, the state of Florida in the old days was called East Florida. West Florida was coastal Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. And the United States, you know, had purchased, made the Louisiana purchase, and then they were hoping or trying to, to tell the Spanish, you know, that, that, that this should be American territory or even purchase it from them. And he didn't make any progress of purchasing um, West Florida. He had a tough time, and actually when he traveled in Spain, you know, Spain was, it was very sad because you had the Spanish Empire, which was huge, and uh, the, Spain had, the Spanish had been extracting wealth from you know, these, all these colonies in America, Latin America and the Philippines and so forth, Guam and the Caribbean. Uh, but the common people were, were very, still very, very poor, and it wasn't safe. It was a dangerous country. And actually, he, he traveled like 10 days, 24 hours a day, you know, without stopping because it wasn't considered safe, safe to stop overnight. He could have commiserated with John Adams, who also traveled in, uh, in Spain by mule. It was very, very tough traveling because they, they didn't have, you know, the government wasn't doing a good job with, with the roads. And uh, so the plight of the poverty-stricken people in, in Spain seemed proof of, a, of quote, to quote Monroe, a government which is perfectly despotic, in which the people count for nothing. By 1807, uh, James, Elizabeth, and their two daughters returned to the United States. And they, were, they finished with their, he finished with his duties in Europe. He considered running for president in 1808, although he did not. And sadly, he was estranged from Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. He, they blamed him for being unable to stop the, the British from, uh, with the impressment issue. Because this was, uh, Americans were outraged about the British kidnapping American sailors. And, and Monroe made no progress. And uh, so this was very sad. You know, politics. There was a lot, when people are under a lot of strain, it's easy to have conflict. And that's what happened. So they were, it was very sad. He was estranged. You know, he'd been estranged from George Washington, now from Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. So he returned to his home in Virginia, returned to farming. He was really, really, really tired and fed up with everything. He started, he was growing wheat, and he had a flour mill and also a distillery to produce liquor. Farm work helped him become healthy and happy because he was really burned out and tired from all this diplomatic work that he'd done in Europe and all the tough traveling that he'd done. In 1808, uh, uh, his daughter Eliza married George Hay. Eliza had grown up, and he, George Hay was the federal prosecutor in the Aaron Burr treason trial. Uh, he was 22 years older than Eliza. And in 1810, she gave birth to a girl, Hortense. Uh, so that was Monroe's, uh, James and Elizabeth Monroe's first grandchild. And the, the name was named Hortense after uh, the fr uh, Eliza's friend in, uh, in, in Paris uh, who became the Queen of Holland. So she had some interesting, she really, Eliza had some, you know, made some interesting connections. You know, the, the, she was friends with the Queen of Holland and the, and the, and the stepdaughter of Napoleon. In 1808, James Madison was elected fourth president of the United States, but at, still they were not uh, reconciled. Um, in, in 1811, um, James Monroe was elected governor of Virginia, and however, he served only a short time. Now, during these years, you know, he was he was just he was home farming, trying to get it, build his health back. But in the meantime, President Madison was having all kinds of problems, and he needed James Monroe because. Uh, 
he was a good man, and he was uh, he needed help. President Madison needed help because he had incompetent. He, there were incompetent guys in his government who were political appointments. You know, as president, you're under a lot of pressure to appoint certain guys from certain states or for political reasons, you know, because you have to do it. And then it turns out they can't do the job and you're in trouble as president. So he, you know, he communicated with, with James Monroe and said, man, I need your help. So uh, Monroe came to, to Washington. The U.S. was in financial pr- trouble. Washington City, the streets were unpaved and muddy. And... Uh, Madison hoped that Monroe could help. He was appointed Secretary of State, and, and President Madison was hoping James Monroe could stop the French and British attacks on American ships. Yeah, tough, tough situation. That ongoing war between the British, between Great Britain and France, and then the U.S. was trading with both countries, and then, uh, and and so the, the each, both countries were stopping American ships from bringing stuff to the other country, the enemy country. And as a result, you know, we had this huge problem, guy, uh, ships being seized and these sailors being arrested. So anyway, as new Secretary of State, uh, President uh, James Monroe confronted the French ambassador. He said American patience was exhausted and we were determined to be respected. So the French response was to release the majority of American ships which had been seized, resume limited trade with the United States. So this, you know, this is interesting because, you know, Monroe was very pro-France, you know, but, uh, you know, he was a good guy, but he could be tough. He says, man, you guys got you know, to stop doing this stuff. You have to, uh, you know, we, all these American ships that have been seized. So he was, he was very successful in this, in this situation. Sadly, his wife Elizabeth was, was having health problems, which plagued her for the rest of her life. She had rheumatoid arthritis. And the new, the new dance craze in the United States was the waltz. Very interesting. That same year, in 1811, William Henry Harrison and the Indiana militia fought American Indians at Tippecanoe, Indiana. The British had been encouraging Indians to attack Americans in the West, and Americans were getting fed up with British abuses. Henry Clay was among the congressional leaders calling for war with Great Britain, and James Monroe agreed. Yeah, that Battle of Tippecanoe, that was an important battle because... uh, well, Tecumseh wasn't there, but this was a part of the, it was, it was, a, it was the Shawnee Indians, and they were organizing, a, trying to organize a, an Indian confederation to stop American expansion. And actually, they attacked, you know, William Henry Harrison came to negotiate with them, to talk with them, because they'd been making raids on American, American settlers and stealing horses. And Tecumseh's brother, Tenskwatawa, whom they called the prophet, you know, he decided, he was kind of crazy, he he ordered an attack on the Americans in the middle of the night. And the Brit- uh, well, the Indians were defeated, and so this led to a weakening of, the, uh, of Tecumseh's confederation and his plans. So this is where William Henry Harrison became famous as a great Indian fighter and helping to create safety for American settlers in the West. June of 1812, President Madison declared war on Great Britain. The War of 1812 started. And there were a number of good reasons for war. The impressment and the British kidnapping of American sailors. Uh, American ports had been blockaded. American ships seized. And uh, the British were encouraging American Indians to attack Americans in the West. They even even were paying them. American Indians were paid for American scalps. This was terrible, really awful. The problem is that, so we had good reasons to go to war. However, we weren't ready for war. We really didn't have a... 
We didn't have a, a, a strong national army. We had these um, state militias, which were often weren't so good. And, uh, and then in New England and New York were completely against the war. They were still mad about the, 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 the embargo that Jeff, President Jefferson had started, which hurt them so much financially. And the Connecticut, Massachusetts governors refused to provide the militia for the war. So we had, we had, we started a war for good reasons, but we had, there were real problems in fighting the war because we didn't have a good, good army and then a major part of the country wouldn't, wouldn't help at all. Uh, General William Hull was scared of a British threat to use Indians, surrendered Detroit without a shot fired. This was early in the war. And uh, see, the thing is that Indians were fighting on the British side. Now, before this, uh, before he surrendered, he'd gotten this uh, a note, a letter from the British uh, demanding that he surrendered. And the, and the letter said this, quote, It is far from my intention to join a war of extermination, but you must be aware that the numerous body of Indians who have attached themselves to my troops will be beyond control the moment the con contest commences. The Indians, American Indians had attacked Fort, Fort Dearborn, which is also, which became... Uh, today is known as Chicago, and massacred, massacred the inhabitants there. So, you know, one of the, the reasons General Hull surrendered, because the American Indians had, had different ideas about war. They didn't take prisoners. You know, they would, they would kill everybody, no, take no prisoners. So this is, this is why this General Hull got scared. He, and not only did they kill all prisoners, but they would kill them slowly and painfully, because this was the Indian way. All the Indians did this. Well, it appears we're out of time. Thank you so much for watching. I really, really appreciate it. God bless you. I hope you find a good history book to read. And I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm, I'm Peter J. Ray. Welcome. Today's topic is James Monroe, Part 3. We stopped last time. Uh, the War of 1812 has started. We stopped in 1812. And during that war, which lasted about... Uh, well, into early 1815, uh, there were plenty of victories and defeats. And one of the early defeats was the fall of Detroit, which was very traumatic. And after that, the uh, British and American Indians took Illinois and Indiana. And the, the folks in Ohio and Kentucky, the settlers there, were ready to fight. So it was, it was, it was a scary time for people in those areas. There were victories in, America, in 1813 for the U.S. In, uh, the U.S. captured York, which later was renamed Toronto in Canada. Also, victories at Fort Niagara and Fort Erie. Major victory on, on Lake Erie on the water, the U.S. Navy, under the command of Oliver, uh, uh, Admiral Ol Oliver Perry, defeated the British uh, near, put, near South Bass Island, and uh, Putten Bay in western Lake Erie, and that gave the United States control of the Great Lakes. Another major victory was in Canada, in Ontario, not too far from Detroit, uh, across the, uh, uh, by the Thames River in Detroit, and in, in, in Ontario, and uh, the British and Indians were defeated by the U.S. forces. And at that battle, Tecumseh was, was killed, and so Tecumseh, Tecumseh was a great man, but um, he his interests were in opposition to those of the United States. So people were pretty happy that he died, at least Americans were, because this meant the weakening and really the end of his dream of, of, of creating a confederation of American Indian nations to stop American expansion west. 
So as a result of all these things, the United States regained control of Illinois and Indiana. But the, uh, there was still more uh, trouble with American Indians who had been inspired by Tecumseh. Uh, Creek Indians uh, attacked and massacred 250 American settlers near Mobile, Alabama, and they had been inspired by Tecumseh. After that, Andrew Jackson uh, took 2,000 men from the Tennessee militia and marched south, attacking the Creek Indians. In two battles, 1,400 Creek warriors were killed, and Andrew Jackson was promoted and became a major general in the U.S. Army. This was the beginning of his rise to fame and power, Andrew Jackson. And that was a major, that defeat of, of the Creek Indians uh, was, was a major development in creating security in what was then the West, allowing Americans to move into, the, into that, to that region east of the Mississippi River. In August of 1814, the, the worst defeat in the war took place when the British marched into Washington, Washington City, our nation's capital, virtually undefended. And they set fire to the, the White House, the Capitol, and other major buildings. So this, this was very traumatic. And it was basically because we had a Secretary of War who was incompetent, John Armstrong. The British only stayed a couple days in Washington, and they, they, they didn't stay long. And then they left. And after the Americans came back into their burned city, the cities, the, the citizens were cursing President James Madison, some of them blaming him for the destruction of the capital. And he was very depressed. He was shattered and woebegone. And this is when, this is when actually James Monroe, uh, probably the most important time of his life, took place. When he, our, the hour of, our, of a very dark time in American history after the burning of Washington City, later renamed Washington, D.C. Uh, and, then, of course, we didn't know what was going to happen next. Uh, would the British come back and, and take Washington permanently? Uh, so, uh, uh, and what, what happened is James, President Madison, he needed, he needed help, and he fired John Armstrong, and uh, James Monroe, who was Secretary of State, was also named Secretary of War, and he continued in that role for the rest of the War of 1812. And then he got very, very busy, and he really rallied our country. First of all, rallied the citizen, citizens of Washington, D.C., Washington City, to defend Washington from a further attack. He installed new enthusiasm in the American Army. You know, James Monroe was a man of action, and he wasn't so much of an intellectual. In wartime, you really need men of action, and uh, James Madison, the president, wasn't so much that. And so James Monroe played a major role. This was really his time to shine, probably the most important time in his life. Historian Harlow Giles Unger, who wrote what I think is the best biography that I've come across of James Monroe, uh, and there really is room. You know, there really is a dearth of, uh, of biographies, of really good biographies. There's a couple others that are so this one by Harry Ammon is pretty detailed. And, uh, but anyway, this is, he wrote a tremendous biography, uh, Harlow Giles Unger, of James Monroe. And he wrote this after, he wrote about uh, Monroe after the destruction of Washington City in August of 1814 when James Monroe was named Secretary of War. Quote, Now in full command, Monroe acted swiftly and deliberately, calling in militia from other states, ordering and distributing supplies and setting up an intelligence system and teams of riders 
to transmit intelligence to his headquarters. He set up a camp cot to let him sleep on the job, but he never slept on the job. He spent almost 24 hours a day in a frenzy of activity, building up troop strength around Washington and Baltimore and ordering artillery placements along the Potomac to bolster defenses of the capital. He was everywhere, immersing himself in every detail of the city's defense, all but hauling logs into the breastworks himself. His was an inspiring presence that rallied citizens' spirits, bound the best of them as one to save their city from further assault. Nor did he ignore the rest of the country. He sent a message to General Andrew Jackson, then headquartered in Mobile, to take his 1,000-man force to defend New Orleans against attack. He promised Jackson 10,000 additional men, then sent express messages to the governors of Tennessee and Kentucky to send militiamen and volunteers to New Orleans. In messages to the press across the nation, he warned of 12 to 15,000 British troops sailing from Ireland on their way to New Orleans and called on Westerners to defend their rights to the Mississippi River. Across the West, farmers, trappers, woodsmen, hunters, the settlers Monroe had championed in Richmond and Washington, answered his call, streaming over fields and through forests by the dozens at first, then hundreds, then thousands, then nearly 6,000 in all on foot, on horses and mules, by wagon and by boat, to take their places in New Orleans alongside the Tennessee general they called Old Hickory. Governors also responded to Monroe's call for militiamen. They had known Monroe for years, trusted him. He had met them all somewhere, in the Army, in Congress, in New York or Philadelphia, somewhere, and he had courted their friendships, kept in touch, writing them regularly with warm, with warm words that always ended with his favorite phrase, your friend. With the government bankrupt and no central bank from which to borrow, Monroe ignored both the law and the Constitution and seized power, saying he was the government of the United States. He intimidated private banks and municipal corporations into lending him more than $5 million on his own signature. So you can see he was real busy. <laughs> he was really busy. And this was, yeah, that great moment in his life. So after the following month, after the British had uh, destroyed Washington, they turned their attention on Baltimore and they attacked Fort McHenry, which is near Baltimore. And the British were defeated. So all the effort that uh, James Monroe made and Americans made worked. And Baltimore was defended successfully. Uh, one of the witnesses to the British uh, attack on Baltimore was attorney Francis Scott Key, who watched the, quote, rocket's red glare and bombs bursting in air, you know, the, the British bombardment of Fort McHenry. To his, to, his amazement, to his amazement in the morning, by the dawn's early light, revealed that the American flag was still there. And so this is where we get the Star-Spangled Banner, which became our national anthem in 1931. Harlow Giles Unger, the wonderful biography of uh, James Monroe, continues, quote, Convinced us never before of the in inability of an untrained citizen's army to defend the country, Monroe scrapped the Republican principles of his youth and drew up a plan to draft a standing army of 100,000 men. Even as a young man, Monroe had never clung obstinately to any political position if he recognized it to be contrary to the nation's interests. Although he recognized the dangers of a standing army to the nation's liberties under an unscrupulous commander-in-chief, 
he also recognized that there might be no nation unless it was prepared at all times to repel foreign invaders. Only a standing army could provide such a defense. Well, we actually did not uh, develop a uh, you know big national army at that time, but he was on the right track because you know Great Britain and France were these superpowers. There were issues with American Indians, and the state militias just were not effective. There was this old belief that uh, going back to ancient Greece and Rome, that you know citizen soldiers could defend the country. And they were worried that you know they thought, oh, if we have a big national army, it will be like the Roman Empire. We'll lose our freedom. So after, uh, after Baltimore was successfully defended and uh, we, achieved, we, we were able to turn the British back after the devastation of the defeat of Wash- at Washington, uh, meanwhile, anti-war Federalists from Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and Vermont met in Hartford, Connecticut, calling for secession. Just imagine, so in the, this federal, the Federalist Party, leaders of the Federalist Party were talking about leaving the Union, well, meanwhile, we're at war. So this was a very, very tough time. And President Madison needed help. He really needed help. And James Monroe was the guy who helped, the guy who helped him during his hour of need and our nation's hour of need. And then the key battle, the most important battle in the war, took place in January of 1815 at New Orleans. The British had this huge force, and they wanted to take New Orleans because it was the key to control of the Mississippi River. And all the work that... Um, James Monroe had done, uh, calling, uh, uh, communicating with Andrew Jackson and lots of people, uh, different state militias, to, and send guys, writing in the newspaper, just individuals were, were going south. And a, a tremendous, amazing, one of the great victories in American his, history took place in, uh, at New Orleans. And Andrew Jackson, the U.S. forces led by Andrew Jackson, defeated the British at New Orleans with very few casualties and lots of, of British casualties. So this was, and this really, uh, this, well, this more than anything else, uh, cemented Andrew Jackson's fame as a national hero. Because it was, because uh, the British would have taken, they would have kept New Orleans, it was the colonial era. Around that time, shortly thereafter, actually the peace treaty had been signed uh, in, in uh, Ghent, Belgium. But the news had not uh, reached. But sure, about a week after, news of the victory at New Orleans, everyone in Washington was waiting to see what would happen. It was very dramatic and a lot of anticipation. People were nervous. And they are very happy that this victory was achieved. And then they got news that the peace treaty had been signed. The war was over. Uh, another thing that happened is William Henry Harrison, his victories over American Indians and Andrew Jackson's led to the purchase of Indian lands east of the Mississippi River. So that, again, that area became safe for settlers, and settlers flooded into the west, the land east of the Mississippi River. Again, Harlow Giles Under continues, quote, Monroe had taken advantage of General William Henry Harrison's victory over the Indian nations of the west to negotiate the purchase of almost all Indian lands east of the Mississippi River, making the western territory between the Appalachian Mountains and the Mississippi River safe for American migration. Secure from attack by British troops and Indians, tens of thousands of Americans streamed westward to carve new farms from virgin plains, harvest furs and pelts from superabundant wildlife, cull timber from vast forests, and chisel ore from rich mountainsides. The land rush added six states and scores of towns to the United States, generated wealth, 
for every man, woman, and child in the nation and engendered the greatest social and economic revolution in history. Never before in the annals of man had a sovereign state transferred so much land to ordinary citizens. Among those five states which joined the Union, uh, uh, five included Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Kentucky, and Tennessee. So this was really something, what, what the, the efforts of James Monroe, among others. After the war, um, Monroe was exhausted. You know, he was really, he was dead. You know, he was, he'd been working so hard. He'd been wor- working seven days a week for six months. And at one point, he wore the same clothes for 10 days. So he was very, very tired. His wife, Elizabeth, was depressed. His daughter was depressed. depressed. And uh, so he needed rest. He needed R&R to, to, to prepare for the next part, part of his life. So by uh, 1816, uh, he decided, James Monroe decided to run for president of the United States. And he also started building his uh, a home that he named Oak Hill, 35 miles from Washington, similar to Monticello. Now, in the election, uh, Monroe was the Republican candidate, and again, the, uh, they changed their name to the Democratic Party just a, a few decades later, and the, 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 the Federalist candidate was Rufus King from New York. Uh, Monroe received 183 electoral votes and King 34, so he was elected the fifth president of the United States, and this was the beginning of the end of the Federalist Party because they were, they were discredited. You know, people realized, wow, look at these guys. We're fighting a war for our survival. And the Federalists were plotting to leave the Union. So the Federalist Party was, was, was a dying party at that time. Also in 1816, the American Colonization Society was formed, the purpose of which was to send free African Americans to Africa. And James Monroe was involved in raising the money to purchase land in West Africa, which became the country of Liberia. The capital uh, city, Monrovia, was named after him. So the United States had a colony in Africa, the purpose of which was to send African Americans there. So by 1817, James Monroe was inaugurated as the fifth president in March of 1817, and he had this to say in his, in his inaugural address, quote, Never did a government commence under auspices so favorable nor ever was success so complete. If we look to the history of other nations, ancient or modern, we find no example of a growth so rapid, so gigantic, of a people so prosperous and happy. In contemplating what we still have to perform, the heart of every citizen must expand with joy when he reflects how near our government has approached to perfection. So he was very, very popular at this time. You know, everybody knew how much he had done. They knew he had served in the American Revolution, and fought in many battles, not so much as, a, as an officer, but as a regular soldier, risked his life. And in the War of 1812, he played the key role in turning the tide in the dark days after the destruction of Washington City and leading to the, 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 the great victory at New Orleans. He'd helped open the West, and uh, there was economic growth. The economy was growing because the West was safe and people were moving in. And he'd, he had gray hair, a lined-faced face but he was robust, handsome, and fit. John Quincy Adams was named his Secretary of State from Massachusetts, and his Secretary of War was John C. Calhoun from South Carolina. So they had the regional ballots, North and South. Also in 1817, the Canadian border was demilitarized. So that was really good. We, uh, that we, 
that could be a safe people people didn't have to worry about attack from either side of the Canadian border. Also in 1817, Mississippi became the 20th state, a slave state. Also, President Monroe had a three and a half month tour to New England and west to Detroit. He was trying to strengthen popular support for his government. Again, late in 1817, he moved into a rebuilt White House. The White House was finally ready for occupancy after the, it, being, it had been burned in uh, 1814. And Monroe had bought auction possessions from the executed Queen Marie Antoinette in France. Remember before when he was ambassador and he brought a number of these, these, uh, this furniture and so forth into the White House. On that trip west, he spent a fair amount of time in Ohio and he, he visited places like Sandusky, Delaware, Chillicothe, Zanesville, total of eight towns in Ohio, as well as Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. After the White House was reopened, it had been called the Presidential Mansion, but it was renamed the White House because of the fresh white paint. And the, uh, the motto of his administration was the era of good feelings because there was uh, people were happy about winning the war and uh, everything, things were going well for the United States. However, in 1818, there were severe economic problems, high inflation. The Bank of the United States was in trouble and danger, it was in danger of going under. It had illegally made, failed to make specie payments. There was a contraction. It curtailed loans and, contra, and uh, contracted credit. The result was the first economic and financial depression in our, for our country, the Panic of 1819. December of 1818, Illinois became the 21st state, a free state, and Alabama became the 22nd state, a slave state. So this was this is how it went. You know, they were trying to keep a balance. Actually, in the House of Representatives, the North had more power than the South because the uh, because the population was growing. In in the House, it's based on population, uh, the number of representatives you have. But in the uh, in the Senate, you know, each state has equal representation. In the, the South was desperately trying to maintain equality of power in the Senate. So they, they made a point that every time a, f- a free state joined, there had to be a slave state as well to maintain that balance. In 1818, Congress voted uh, to create what's, what's really the uh, American flag of today with 13 red and white stripes. And they also voted that a new star would be added for each new state on July 4th following that state's admission. Uh, every time, yeah, so every, every July 4th, they'd add a, add a star or maybe more than one star, depending on how many states had joined the Union in the previous year. Major problem that we had was Florida, uh, what's now coastal Alabama, Louisiana, uh, and uh, well, in the state of Florida, was a Spanish colony, and it was very weakly governed. You know, the Spanish had this huge empire, and the uh, Seminole Indians were the major Indians in Florida, uh, and, and a lot of uh, African-American slaves had escaped south and joined the Seminole Indians. They'd become free in Florida in the Spanish colony. And uh, the Seminole Indians and these uh, African-Americans, uh, uh, African-Americans were going on raids into Georgia and making pirate attacks. So this was, this was unacceptable, you know, because then they thought, oh, well, they would, they would cross the border and make a raid and, you know, steal horses and steal things and then go back into Florida. And they thought, oh, it's, it's Spanish territory. You know, they can't, they can't catch us. However, 
The U.S. was fed up with this, and the U.S. Army, led by Andrew Jackson, entered Florida, defeated the Seminole Indians and these uh, free African Americans, destroyed homes, and hanged two Seminole Indian chiefs. Also in 1818, the National Road was opened between Cumberland, Maryland, and Wheeling, West Virginia. 130 miles long, 20 feet wide, a stone surface. They also called it the Cumberland Road. So this was an important step, important uh, contribution to our nation's infrastructure. But by uh, 1819, there had been negotiations. The U.S. Army was in Florida, and the uh, U.S. had been negotiating to buy Florida, and finally the Spanish agreed uh, under duress, and the U.S. paid $5 million for Florida. And you have to give Andrew Jackson a lot of credit for that because he was the one that went in, and he got into some trouble because he exceeded his mandate. He was just supposed to go in and, uh, and um, you know, do a little fighting, maybe try to find the renegades who had been making these raids and leave. And he'd stayed. And then uh, Americans wanted Florida. And uh, so this, this happened in 1819. Florida became a part, became a U.S. territory. Also in 1819, the Savannah was the first steamship to cross the Atlantic, sailed from Savannah, Georgia, to Liverpool, England. This was a big deal because, uh, you know, in the old days you had to have sail power to, to, to cross the ocean, to travel across the ocean. And, uh, you know, if there's no wind, you weren't going anywhere. And these steamships, they could travel without any, uh, without any wind. And this was, you know, early in the Industrial Revolution. They burned uh, coal, and then, the, you know, these big... Uh, these things, these wheels would move, and the thing could, the, the ships could move without without sail power. This was a really beginning of the trans, early parts of the early part of the transportation revolution on the ocean. In 1820, the population of the United States was 9.6 million people, still very small compared to today. You know, we have like 300 million today. New York had the state had the most people with 1.3 million, and Pennsylvania was second with 1 million. You know, a big part of that was uh, Philadelphia, this big city. 1820, there was more, more conflict regarding the slavery issue. Missouri was admitted as a slave state. Maine was admitted as a free state. And they voted in Congress to ban slavery north of 36 degrees north latitude. So and John Quincy Adams, the um, uh, James Monroe's Secretary of State, wrote this, quote, I take it for granted that the present question is a mere preamble, a title page to a great tragic volume. This was called the Missouri Compromise, and it was we were on our way toward the Civil War because there was growing conflict between North and South. More and more people in the North were against slavery and thought they were ashamed to live in a country that had slavery. Meanwhile, in the South, uh, people were making money from cotton. Cotton was the big business. Cotton was king, and slavery. And slave labor was the labor force that was used to cultivate cotton. So they, they didn't want to give up slavery. So the, 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 pro, the, the anti-slavery and pro-slavery forces were growing. During uh, Monroe's presidency, John Quincy Adams was a huge help to him, just as Monroe had been a huge help to James Madison. And James Madison had been a huge help to Thomas Jefferson and so forth. The first wedding in the White House took place in 1820, Monroe's daughter, Maria Hester, got married in the White House. So that was a happy time. 
1820 election came and James Monroe was up for re-election and he ran and uh, there was there was no opposition. Nobody ran against him. There were no Republican candidates and there were no Federalist candidates. The Federalist Party was basically gone. And um, in the Electoral College, Monroe received 231 votes, uh, one short of, of 100%. One vote went to John Quincy Adams, who was embarrassed by, by receiving this vote because he, 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 he didn't run. But one of the presidential electors, one of the guys in the Electoral College, believed that uh, he, he, his reasoning was George Washington was the only president to be unanimously elected twice. And once, and no other president had 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 that happen. He thought, well, this should. He wanted to sort of preserve that honor for George Washington. But basically, Monroe, you know, was was reelected unanimously, aside from this token vote for John Quincy Adams. So he was reelected for a second term. So you can see how popular he was. And really, we only had one party. The Federalist Party was so weak, and the Republican Party. There was no question that he would be the nominee. His vice president was John Tompkins. He was also re-elected. In New York City, there's a Tompkins Square Park named after uh, John Tompkins. Interesting. So he was preparing for his second uh, four-year term, second and last. Also in 1821, the first public high school in the United States opened in Boston, Massachusetts. That year, two of the famous American authors, who still are well-known today, include Washington Irving, and, and James Fenimore Cooper, who are very, very well known. James Fenimore Cooper, who wrote uh, Last of the Mohicans. I believe one of the, one of the characters is uh, the old TV show MASH, Hawkeye Pierce. was named after a character from the, from the Last of the Mohicans, written by James Fenimore Cooper. MASH was a popular TV show back in the 70s. 17s. In 1822... The, uh, one of the big empires over in the, well, in the Middle East was the Ottoman Empire. It was weakening. And, well, it was on a long path toward weakness because it was very despotic. You know, it was not a democratic empire, and they had a very corrupt government. And um, there was uh, a movement among Greeks. Greeks were fighting for independence. Now, remember back in, you know, 1822, Americans were very much uh, interested in the ancient Greeks and Romans and really believed in them. You know, the Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Julius Caesar, all this ancient stuff from Greece and Rome. So Americans were captivated. They thought, oh, wow, the Greeks are fighting for independence. So private donors in Charleston, South Carolina, donated 50 barrels of dried meat to feed the Greek insurgents against the Ottoman Empire. Lord Byron was an intellectual who actually, a poet from England, who went and died fighting for Greek independence. I have a friend named Byron Spooner, named after uh, Lord Byron, who's He's a Greek-American. Well, it appears we're out of time. Thank you very much for watching. God bless you. I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Peter J. Ray. Welcome. Today's topic is James Monroe, Part 4. Today we'll wrap up the life of James Monroe, the fifth president of the United States of America. We stopped last time in 1822, and uh, Greece, the, the Greek people, the, the, the country of Greece was fighting for independence against the Ottoman Empire. A lot of folks in Europe and in the United States were very supportive of that because of their affinity or their interest in the, uh, the great uh, thinkers from ancient Greece. You know, unlike today, people don't really, this is something we probably could revive, we should revive today, our knowledge of the ancient Greeks because Americans 
back back in the early 1800s were very knowledgeable, and therefore they were very they were very interested in the Greeks becoming independent, and and they knew about these famous Greeks like like uh, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, and of course uh, Athens was the considered the uh, birthplace of democracy, and the the Olympic Games were started by the ancient Greeks. So, anyway, that was very interesting. And, the, and actually, the Americans support, supported the Greek independence movement, and Greece did become an independent country. Also in 1822, President Monroe, he was, in his, he was in his second term as president, and he authorized the dispatch of a U.S. frigate, in other words, an American ship, naval ship, to the, to the northern outreach of the Antarctic Peninsula. Wow, down to the bottom of the world. And this was done to, quote, strengthen our forces along the American coast. So you just you imagine, wonder what they were doing down there, or how long they stayed. And, but you can see the United States was on its way to becoming an international, a global power, because we were patrolling Antarctica. Also in 1822, a very dramatic year, uh, most of the countries of Latin America became independent of Spain, including Mexico, Chile, Argentina, Colombia, Ecuador, and Venezuela. They all became independent of, of Spain. The leader, and, and Brazil as well, became independent of Portugal. So virtually most, almost all of Latin America, except for Cuba and uh, Puerto Rico and uh, a few other places. The leaders of these independence movements included Simon Bolivar in northern South America. What's, uh, he led the movement for countries like uh, Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, uh, yeah, Peru maybe. And then uh, Jose de San Martin was the guy who led uh, independence for Argentina. And uh, Bernard O'Higgins led the independence movement for Chile. Interesting, oh guy named O'Higgins. He was a, must have been a descendant of an Irish immigrant. And the United States recognized these, country, these, these countries. And you know, James uh, Monroe, President Monroe, had a tough time dealing with, uh, it, was, it was a very delicate situation, because during these independence movements, which had been going on for, for 12 years, folks in Latin America fighting Spain for independence, um, the, uh, they, these guys would come, they would send representatives to the United States hoping for uh, recognition, and the U.S. didn't want war with Spain, you know, over this. So there was kind of a delicate thing. But we did. Uh, Americans were supportive of these revolutions, and actually, the revolutions in Latin America were inspired by the American War of Independence against Great Britain. So, in in December of 1823. President Monroe gave a speech to Congress in which what became known as the, the Monroe Doctrine was introduced to the public. And the whole idea was that European countries needed to stay out, stay away from North and South America. At least uh, new, colon, new colonization was, 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 uh, was uh, he was saying, we, we wouldn't, wouldn't support, we'd be against that. Now, Canada was still a British colony and Jamaica and the Caribbean, and Cuba was still Spanish, and, and Puerto Rico was Spanish, and the Bahamas was British. And so there, but he was saying that there would be uh, these, these countries that had become independent, the U.S. was supporting their independence, and they were not open 
he was not. He said, "We don't want uh, further colonization. We don't want Spain or any other country to come and take these their independence away." That the the United States. This was the sphere of influence of the United States. So American power was growing. And this is what he said in part, quote, The American continents, by the free and independent condition, which they have assumed and maintained, are henceforth not to be considered as subject for future colonization by any European power. Harlow Giles Unger, the tremendous uh, biography, who wrote this wonderful biography of James Monroe, uh, wrote this, quote, On December 2, 1823, Monroe strode into Congress to deliver his seventh annual message to that body. He had aged noticeably, still tall and fit, but his hair had grayed and deep worry lines had etched his face. Still wearing knee breeches, silk hose, and buckle-top shoes, while his audience wore ankle-length trousers, he seemed out of place, out of the distant past, come to ensure his own legacy. Members of Congress stood to applaud and cheer, some of them trembling with awe as they watched him make his way down the aisle, the last of the Founding Fathers. To maintain peaceful, friendly relations, he said, his voice rising, he proclaimed United States supremacy in the Western Hemisphere, describing a line in the ocean around North and South America, and warning the rest of the world as his Virginia regiment had the British in 1776. Don't tread on me. So that was, you know, that's very important speech. The following year, the Marquis de Lafayette visited America, the great uh, hero, French volunteer in the American Revolution. And it was, there was a national celebration because Americans were very grateful to France and specifically to Lafayette because, you know, he played a major role in, in getting French support in the war. And he himself, you know, had 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 been wounded and, and in, been involved in, in, in many battles fighting Great Britain. It was, New York City saw its first ticker tape parade with flower petals. And Lafayette had this to say in, in the United States when he came to visit. I have stood strong and held my head high whenever in the name of the American people I have proclaimed the American principles of equality and social order. The greatness and prosperity of the United States are spreading the light of civilization across the world. A civilization based on liberty, on resistance to oppression, and on the rights of man. So he was, uh, yeah, he was getting older, so he wanted to come visit. He was actually having severe financial problems as well. And he visited President Monroe at the White House, and it was, they had a very touching reunion. Remember, after... Uh, uh, Lafayette had been severely wounded at Brandywine, the Battle of Brandywine. And, uh, and at, after that battle, James Monroe uh, tended his wounds. He took care of him. They became very, very good friends. And in the French Revolution, remember James Monroe and his wife had come to Paris during the Reign of Terror, and uh, Lafayette's wife was in prison. And Monroe, James, and Elizabeth Monroe saved her life. Elizabeth went to the prison, risked her life during that crazy a violent time, and was able to get her released. And he got her out of the country to safety with an American passport to uh, to Denmark. So they had a very, you know, they were they were wonderful friends because they really, you know, they're, you know, and Monroe had done so much for them, and and Lafayette, you know, had done a lot for the United States. Um, James Monroe had this to say in eight, late in eighteen twenty four. Quote: Having commenced my public service in my early youth 
and continued it with few and short intervals, I have witnessed the great difficulties to which our union has been exposed, and admired the virtue and intelligence with which they have been surmounted. From the present prosperous and happy state, I derive a satisfaction which I cannot express. That these blessings may be preserved and perpetuated will be the object of my fervent and unceasing prayers to the supreme ruler of the universe. That year, 1824, was a presidential election year, and James Monroe was stepping down after his second term. Uh, he'd had enough, and he, he was pretty tired. Five men uh, try, tried to become president in, in 1824, including Henry Clay, William Crawford, John Quincy Adams, Andrew Jackson, and John C. Calhoun. Now, it was a controversial election because actually none of the candidates uh, received enough electoral votes to win. And that threw it, and although Andrew Jackson had the most, the most electoral votes. So because he didn't have enough to win, it was thrown into the House of Representatives who voted and uh, who had to decide. And Henry Clay uh, threw his weight behind, uh, told his uh, people, his delegates, to vote for John Quincy Adams. So John Quincy Adams was elected the sixth president of the United States, even though Andrew Jackson received more votes. It was very controversial. And then later, uh, John Quincy Adams named Henry Clay as Secretary of State. So it was con this was considered a very, it was considered a corrupt bargain. It's very, very sad. I think, I think that was a mistake. John Quincy Adams made a mistake. If it, you know, he probably should have said, well, the people's choice, you know, since J Jackson received the most votes, uh, you know, Jackson should be president. Maybe he should have told Henry Clay, no, you should vote for, give your votes to, 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 to Jackson. But he didn't do that. And so, anyway, and then John Quincy Adams had a very tough time as president. He was very unpopular because, you know, he really was not the people's choice. Uh, Lafayette was in the United States in, uh, on New Year's Day, 1825, and he came to the Congress and gave a, gave a, gave a speech. And he said this, quote, to the perpetual union of the United States. It has always saved us in time of storm. One day it will save the world. So, in, in March of 1825, John Quincy Adams was inaugurated as the uh, sixth president of the United States, and James and Elizabeth Monroe re uh, returned to Oak Hill, their elegant mansion built south of Leesburg, Virginia, and he resumed his friendship with Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, although Jefferson only had a year to live. So he, had, he was back at his farm where he had cattle, horses, a thousand sheep, timberland, wheat, corn, rye, and oats were grown. His secretary, Egbert Watson, wrote this about James Monroe, quote, He was one of the most polite men I ever saw to all ranks and classes. It was his habit in his ride of a morning or an e evening to bow and speak to the humblest slave he passed as respectfully as if he had been the first gentleman of the neighborhood. So yes, James Monroe was a slave owner, but he was a very, he respected the slaves. He treated them well. He treated them with respect. Uh, there was a get-together in 1825, and uh, John inc included James Monroe and John Marshall, his childhood friend, guy he'd been uh, gone to school with and was in college with and had shared a, uh, shared a cabin at Valley Forge, longtime friends. And John Marshall gave a toast 
the James Monroe, and he said this, quote, I am proud to recognize one of my earliest associates, one with whom I have frequently acted in the most trying scenes, for whom I have felt and still retain the most affectionate and respected esteem, without a taint of that bitter spirit which has been too long the scourge of our country. So that's interesting. He's talking about, you know, how much he, he really loved, John Marshall really loved uh, James Monroe. James Monroe was a good man. In this last part, he talks about, you know, the fact that a lot of times people, you know, really mistreat each other, and especially in politics. There's some be, can be very hard feelings. In his final years, uh, James Monroe was having severe financial problems. Actually, he had spent a lot of money in Europe as a diplomat and was, was, not, uh, was not compensated by the U.S. government. And uh, he had a perpetual struggle trying to get his uh, expenses paid. Uh, his wife, Elizabeth, was her. she had been in poor health for a long time, actually going back to, to the years in the White House, and she had trouble fulfilling her role as First Lady. Um, and then, uh, very sadly, she, one day she, she fell into the fireplace. You know, just, that's a pretty bad, that's a bad place to fall. And she was very, she was badly burned. So this was, this was really, so he was having hard times near the end of his life. And uh, also that year, Monroe fell from his horse and was badly hurt. He was 72 years old. That year, John Quincy Adams was defeated by Andrew Jackson in the presidential election. And, uh, and then uh, James Monroe, who was, you know, they were very close. John Quincy Adams was a big help to James Monroe when he was president. And so Monroe wrote John Quincy Adams a letter, and he said this, quote, I shall always be happy to see you here and wherever, wherever we may chance to meet. I shall through life take a sincere and great interest in your welfare and happiness. In 1830, uh, Elizabeth died, and this was, this was a, you know, this was a disaster, really. It was the end of the world for James Monroe because they were so close, very, very close. He was really uh, grief-struck and devastated by her, by her death because they were, they were very good friends, very close partners. So it was, he decided to sell his home of Oak Hill, and he moved to New York City to live with his daughter uh, because he, uh, he just, they felt he shouldn't be alone. He, was just, uh, he needed to be, to be with his daughter. John Quincy Adams wrote about Elizabeth's love for James Monroe, quote, This lady, of whose personal attractions and accomplishments it were impossible to speak in terms of exaggeration, was for a period of half a century the cherished, affectionate partner of Monroe's life and fortunes. She accompanied him on all his journeying into this world of care. They had a wonderful marriage. She was a very good people, good, good lady. And, and then uh, John Quincy Adams continued, she united the more precious and endearing qualities which mark the fulfillment of the tender relations of domestic life. James Monroe died on July 4th, 1831 in New York City, the 55th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. His funeral was at St. Paul's Church on Lower Broadway. In 1858, his remains were moved to Richmond, Virginia Cemetery, and he was buried nearby a later president, uh, John Tyler, and uh, also Jefferson Davis, who became the, who was the president of the Confederacy during the Civil War. After his death, President Jackson ordered a national day of mourning, with guns at military posts firing every hour from noon till sunset, and ending with a 24-gun salute. You know, when uh, Andrew Jackson exceeded his orders in Florida, 
and there was a lot of people who were critical of him. James Monroe, uh, although diplomatic, was supportive of him. So Jackson was appreciative of him. And they had, of course, they had worked together uh, on the uh, organizing the, the battle at New Orleans in the War of 1812, that great victory. Harlow Giles Unger wrote this about James Monroe, quote, James Monroe was the last of the founding fathers. Born and raised on a small Virginia farm, Monroe had fought and bled at Trenton as a youth, suffered the pangs of hunger and the bite of winter at Valley Forge, galloped beside Washington at Monmouth, recognized by friends and foes alike for his plain and gentle manners. Monroe proved a fearless and bold leader in war and peace. As governor of Virginia, Monroe brought education to illiterate children by establishing the first state-supported schools, and he enriched their parents with a network of publicly built roads that let them speed the products of their labor to market. Monroe took office as president determined to lead the nation to greatness by making the United States impregnable to foreign attack and ensuring, ensuring the safety of Americans across the continent. Secure that they and their families and property would be safe, Americans streamed westward to claim their share of America. The land rush added six states and scores of towns and villages to the Union and produced the largest redistribution of wealth in the, in the annals of man. Never before had a sovereign state transferred ownership of so much land and so much political power to so many people not of noble rank. To ensure the success of the land rush and perpetuate economic growth, Monroe promoted construction of roads, turnpikes, bridges, and canals that linked every re region of the nation with outlets to the sea and to shipping routes to other continents. The massive rebuilding program transformed the American wilderness into the most prosperous and productive nation in history, generating enough wealth to convert U.S. government deficits into large surpluses that allowed Monroe to ab abolish all personal taxes in America. Monroe's presidency made poor men rich, turned political allies into friends, and united a divided people as no president had done since Washington. The most beloved president after Washington, Monroe was the only president other than Washington to win re-election unopposed. Political parties dissolved and disappeared. Americans of all pol political persuasions rallied around him under a single star-spangled banner. He created an era never seen before or since in American history, an era of good feelings that propelled the nation and its people to greatness. Although fierce in the face of enemies, Monroe hid what one congressman called a, quote, good heart and amiable disposition. After the Civil War, as the wounds of war healed, Americans could still look to the vast western wilderness that James Monroe had opened for his countrymen to build new homes, new towns, and a new, stronger nation. The spirit of America's last founding father still beckoned to them to join the nation's march to greatness. John C. Calhoun had this to say about James Monroe, quote, He had a wonderful intellectual patience and could hold a subject immovably fixed under his attention until he had mastered all of its relations. See, that's the thing. Monroe was patient. You know, he didn't just make up his mind. You know, he wanted to get information. A lot of these uh, problem political issues are complicated, and you need to really know a lot more. So he was, he, was, he was a hard worker, and he would be patient to try to figure out what was the right thing to do. There was a, a reception at the, uh, at the White House 
one time, and uh, he was asked by a friend, quote, Are you not completely worn out? And Monroe replied, Oh, no, a little flattery will support a man through great fatigue. <laughs> it's a funny guy. James Monroe had this to say, quote, In a government founded on the sovereignty of the people, the education of youth is, is an object of the first importance. A people well informed on the subject of their rights, their interests, and their duties would never fall into the excesses which prove the ruin of ancient republics. President Monroe was in Boston on July 4th, 1817, and he toured Bunker Hill, and he said this, quote, It is impossible to approach Bunker Hill, where the war of the revolution commenced, with so much honor to the nation, without being deeply affected. The blood spilled here aroused the whole American people and united them in a common cause in defense of their rights. That union will never be broken. John Quincy Adams had this to say about James Monroe, quote, he was entitled to say, like Augustus Caesar of his imperial city, that he found her built of brick and left her constructed of marble. Historian and biography Harry Ammon wrote this about James Monroe, quote, In spite of his rather formal manners, Monroe had a rare ability of putting men at ease by his courtesy, his lack of condescension, his frankness, and by what his contemporaries looked upon as his essential goodness and kindness of heart. Gary Hart, who also wrote a biography of uh, James Monroe and was presidential contender himself in 1984 and 1988, wrote this, quote, Monroe's mind was orderly and logical, moving methodically from evidence to conclusion. Wisdom, intensity of focus, and sound judgment were the hallmarks of his mind and character. As a 19-year-old Virginia lieutenant charging the Hessian guns at Trenton in 1776, Nearly at the cost of his life, he exhibited the unswerving sense of duty, courage, and honor that would characterize his life. So I read, I read three books, three biographies of uh, James Monroe for, this, for these talks. Uh, the first was The Last Founding Father, by James Monroe and a Nation's Call to Greatness by Harlow Giles Unger, 2009. And the next, James Monroe, the Quest for National Identity by Harry Ammon, 1971. And finally, James Monroe by Gary Hart, 2005. So to conclude, James Monroe is a wonderful hero in American history. He played an important role in the revolution himself, risked his life, was almost died at the Battle of Trenton, the key battle that turned the war around, the American Revolution, the victory that we needed. So, and he was, he was with Washington there and later at Monmouth Courthouse, and he played a, his, maybe his most important role was in the War of 1812 when everything was falling apart after Washington City was burned and New England was threatening to secede. And he helped successfully to defend Baltimore and, uh, and, and New Orleans, two very important victories. He did a lot for Virginia, promoting education. And he, he coordinated with William Henry Harrison and Andrew, Andrew Jackson to make the West safe at, for American settlers after victories had been achieved against American Indians. Uh, so he really, you know, he was a good, he was a good guy. He was a good man. He was very, he, he worked hard and he, yeah, he sacrificed. He died bankrupt, actually. And uh, he did, a, he represented America's interest in a tough situation, the French Revolution, really something. 
So the main thing, the thing about his life, I think, is that what's important is he had good character. He was a good man. He was honest. He worked hard. He was brave. He was dedicated to his country. He sacrificed financially through his public service. Really did a wonderful job. God bless James Monroe, a man who served his country well. The next president we'll talk about will be John Quincy Adams. In the meantime, God bless you. Thank you so much for watching. I hope you find a good history, book to read, and I'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. You might consider checking out past episodes, our podcast channel, and our website, Adventures in History with Peter J. Ray at peterjray.com. If you like what you're hearing, you might consider sharing it with friends. It helps a lot. Thanks again for listening. I really appreciate it. God bless you. Take care, and I'll see you next time.